Happy Tuesday, everybody. This is uh, Tuesday, November the 10th, 2020 in the St. Louis area. It's kind of a rainy day today, but the uh, air temperature's right around 75, 76, a little humid. So uh, what's it like where you are? Hi, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the best old-time radio podcast for Tuesday, November the 10th. And uh, Chester has chosen one of his favorite episodes of Suspense. And the reason we have suspense today is because Tuesdays is drama day, old-time radio dramas. So what we would like to suggest you do is get yourself nice and comfortable in that big easy chair, settle back, and relax. Maybe get yourself a little something to drink. Let the cares of the day float away, because we're going to come back with a great old-time radio drama. Henry Mancini. The name of that tune is Experiment in Terror. It was based on a film, hmm, I'd say in the early 60s, maybe the late 50s, maybe the mid 60s, called Experiment in Terror with Glenn, uh, not Glenn Close. It had uh, Glenn Ford and Lee Remick, who I really liked. I thought Lee Remick was great. She died very young. Okay, we have an episode of Suspense coming up tonight, and I promised you a mind teaser on this one. This one's really good. I like this one. It features Howard Duff and Joseph Kearns in the main roles. In supporting roles, boy, this is a who's who on this cast tonight. John McIntyre, Frank Albertson, uh, Dick Ryan, Horace Willard, Teresa Marshall plays the hostess at the party. And at her party, there's Jeanette Nolan, uh, Wally Mayer, Mary Jane Croft and, and several others. Just put my list there. This originally aired back in 1947 on November the 20th. So here it comes. This the name of this one is 100 in the Dark, and it's a famous episode of Suspense. I think you're going to enjoy it, and just let it play with your mind. There's no big surprises in this one. This one is a mind game. Here it comes. Suspense. 
Tonight's suspense brings you an all-star cast of Hollywood's finest radio players in 100 in the Dark. And now, Shenley brings you radio's outstanding theater of thrills... Suspense! Tonight, Roma Wines of Fresno, California, presents 100 in the Dark, a study in suspense. Produced, edited, and directed for Shenley by William Spear. was a fine meal indeed. Me for the club any time. Here. You can all sit here, Quinny. Oh, yes, yes. If you'll just draw up that chair for Mr. Peters. There you are, Peters. Thank you. You all know Peters? Oh, this is Mr. Steingall. How do you do? Glad to know you. Mr. DeGalia. I believe we've met. Yes, how are you? You know each other. And the one who drew up your chair, Mr. Rankin? All right. for the chair. Well, I guess we're all acquainted. (laughs) Now, to get back to our table discussion. Oh, me. yes, 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 yes. Oh, how about some coffee? All of us, eh? Oh, yes. oh fine. Oh, John, John. Well, now, Steingall, as I said, there are only half a dozen stories in the world. What is more to the point, there's every... Uh... Yes, sir? Yeah? Oh, yes, yes, coffee, John. Uh, anything else, anybody? No, nothing. I don't either. think I care for it. Yes, sir. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. Human relations are so simple and yet so fundamental that they can be eternally played upon, redressed and reinterpreted in every language, in every age. They remain inexhaustible in the possibility of variations. Well, that's true, of course. Yeah, well, that's very possible. Well, now, but you... uh, take the eternal triangle. Uh, two men and a woman, or two women and a man. Its variations extend into the thousands. <laughs> that right, Rankin? Well, in a way, yes. But <laughs> oh, yes, this... coffee. Yes, just set them right down. I'm afraid we, we can't see eye to eye, Quinny. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe there are situations, original situations, that are independent of your human emotions. Yes? They exist just because they are situations. Accidental and nothing else. Now, as for instance. Well, I... Uh, I'll cite... Just an ordinary one that happens to come to my mind. Well? Now, you take in a, in a group of five men, such as we are here. Well, a, uh, a theft takes place. A theft. Mm. One man is the... Which one? Now, I now I'd, like... I'd, I'd like to know what emotion that interprets. And yet it certainly is an original theme. It's at the bottom of a whole literature. Mm. Well, not no, safe no. Take this story. I did no, answer yeah. that certainly the situation did. you give can be traced back to the commonest of human emotions, curiosity. I think when he has you there, Rank. Yes. Why, the whole art of a detective story consists in the statement of the problem. Why, anyone can do it. I can do it. Steingal can do it. Well, I don't Rankin, know. I believe even you can yeah. do it. <laughs> Thank you. The solution yeah. doesn't count. It's usually but banal. It should be prohibited. What interests us is, can we guess it? Yeah, I suppose that's true. Now, every yeah. crime expresses itself in the terms of the picture puzzle that you feed to your six-year-old. It's only the variation that is interesting. <clears throat> you know, the well-known instance of the visitor at a club and the rare coin, for example. Of course, uh, you all know that one. No, oh, I don't. Oh, uh, I don't it's it's I very don't well know. known. Seems a distinguished visitor is brought into a club. Dozen men say, present at dinner, long table. Conversation finally veers around to curiosities and relics. One of the members then takes from his pocket what he announces as one of the rarest coins in existence passes it around the table. Mm-hmm. Coin travels back and forth, everyone examines it, and the conversation goes to another topic. Who say, the influence of the automobile on civilian life or some <laughs> other such intellectual club topic, you know. <laughs> All at once, the owner calls for his coin. And it's nowhere to be found. Yes, yes, precisely. Everyone looks at everyone else. 
first they suspect a joke. Then it becomes serious. The coin is immensely valuable. Who has taken it? The owner, as a gentleman, does the correct idiotic thing, of course, laughs. Says he knows someone is playing a practical joke on him and that the coin will be returned tomorrow. The others refuse to leave the situation so. One man proposes they all submit to a search. Hmm. Everyone gives his consent until it comes to the stranger. (coughs) I refuse to allow my person to be searched, says he. He's very firm, very proud, very English. (laughs) And I refuse to give the reason for my action. Well, there's another silence. The men eye him and then glance at one another. Now, what's to be done? Nothing. Oh, nothing. (laughs) There is etiquette, that magnificent inflated blue. (laughs) The visitor evidently has the coin. But he is their guest and etiquette protects him. Now, nice situation, eh? Well, the table is clear. A waiter removes a dish of fruit, and there, under the ledge of the plate... Where it had been pushed is the coin. Yeah, well, I yes, yes, of course, by now, no, explanation. The... I know, I know. I know. <clears throat> Solutions always should be. At once, everyone is profuse with apologies. Whereupon the visitor rises and says, Now, I can give you the reason for my refusal to be searched. There are only two known specimens of the coin in existence, and the second happens to be here in my vest pocket. Mm. <laughs> Of course, the story is very well invented, but the turn to it is very nice, very nice indeed. Uh, well, I knew that story, I knew, but the, the ending, the ending, though, is too obvious to be invented. Think so? The visitor should have had on him, uh, not another coin, mm. but something absolutely different. Something, uh, well, destructive, say, to a woman's reputation. Oh, dear. And a great tragedy should have been threatened with a casual misplacing of the coin. Uh-huh. I've heard the same story told in a dozen different ways. Oh, it's happened a hundred times. It must be continually happening. <clears throat> I uh, know one extraordinary instance. In fact, the uh, most extraordinary instance of this sort I've ever heard. Why, Peters, you rascal. I see you've quietly been letting us dress the stage for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, not a story that'll please everyone. Oh, why not? Because you'll want to know what no one can ever know. It has no conclusion, then, huh? Uh, yes and no. As far as it concerns a woman, however, quite the most remarkable woman I've ever met, the story is complete. Aha, mm-hmm. it concerns a woman. A woman. And a crime. A crime of thievery, such as we've been discussing, huh? A crime of thievery, yes. Quite a story. I think, uh, yes, I uh, have just time before I catch my train to tell it to you. Uh, Quinny, uh, before I start, I wonder would you ask the, uh, uh, John, I believe is his oh, name? Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, sir, uh, John. Yes, gentlemen? Uh, John, I have a train to catch. Would you be good enough to get me out of here in exactly 15 minutes? In 15 minutes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> well, you have our attention, Peters. It concerns a woman. Uh, do I know the woman? Uh, possibly. Uh, probably, I should say, but, uh, no more than anyone else. Oh, an actress. Uh, what she's been in the past, I don't know. A promoter would better describe her. A very feminine woman, and yet, as you shall see, with an unusual, instantaneous, masculine power of uh, decision. Peters, you're destroying your story. Your preface will bring an (laughs) anticlimax. You shall be the judge. Of course, it uh, should be particularly interesting to you, because I believe most of you are acquainted with the people involved. The names uh, I shall use, of course, are disguises. Mrs., uh, well, uh, Mrs. Rita Kildare inhabited a charming bachelor girl studio, very elegant of the duplex pattern, in one of the buildings just off Central Park West. 
She uh, knew pretty nearly everyone in that indescribable society in New York that is drawn from all levels, that it imposes but one condition for membership, and that is to be a music. Ah, good phrase, that really good. good phrase. She uh, had a certain amount of money. She knew a certain number of men in Wall Street affairs, and her studio was furnished with taste and even distinction. She was of any age. She might have suffered everything or nothing at all. In this mingled society, her invitations were eagerly sought, her dinners were spontaneous, and the discussions, though gay and usually daring, were invariably under the control of wit and good taste. On the uh, Sunday night of this adventure, she had, according to her invariable custom, sent away her Filipino butler and invited to an informal chafing dish supper seven of her more congenial friends. At 7 o'clock, having finished dressing, she put in order her bedroom, which formed a sort of free passage between the studio and a small dining room with the kitchen beyond. Then, going into the studio, she struck a match and was about to light the candlesticks which illuminated the room. When the bell rang, and a Mr. Flanders, a broker, compact, nervously alive, well-groomed, was waiting as she opened the door. Well, you're early. On the contrary, dear lady, you are late. Well, in any case, hello, and come on inside. Here, let me take your things. Thank you. I, uh, I'm the first, I suppose. Of course. And since you are, you can be a good boy and help me light the candles. <laughs> Delighted. Who's to be here tonight? The Enos Jacksons. Oh, I thought they were separated. Not yet. <laughs> How interesting. Only you, dear lady, would dream of serving us a couple on the verge. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? Assuredly. Where did you know the Jacksons? Through the Warings. Uh... Jackson's a rather doubtful person, isn't he? Mm, let's call him a very sharp lawyer. Oh? Uh, they tell me, though, he's been gambling pretty much in deep. Oh, how about yourself? Oh, me? <laughs> I'm a bachelor, and if I lose my shirt, it makes no difference. Oh, is that possible? Probable, even. Oh. Uh, who else is coming? Oh, Maud Lyle. You know her. No, I don't think so. You do, too. You met her here some time ago, a journalist. Oh, yes, yes, I'd forgotten. Mr. Harris, a club man, is coming. And the Stanley Cheevers. The Stanley Cheevers? Uh-huh. We're going to gamble? Well, don't tell me you object. Oh, certainly not. Only the Cheevers, they play quite a game. Well united, and they have an unusual streak of good luck. Uh, say, by the way, it's Jackson, isn't it, who's so attractive to Mrs. Cheevers? Quite right. Well, what a charming party. Mm-hmm. And where does Maud Lyle come in? Oh, don't joke. She's in a desperate way. And young Harris? Oh, he used to make the salad and cream the chicken. <laughs> ah, I see the whole party. I, of course, am to add the element of respectability. Of what? <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> That's better. Ah, no one, of course, knows who's coming. No one, of course. The uh, uh, Stanley Cheevers entered, a short, fat man with a vacant, fat face and a slow-moving eye, and his wife... Voluble, nervous, overdressed, and pretty. Mr., uh, yes, uh, Mr. Uh, Harris came with uh, Maud Lyle, a woman, straight, dark, Indian, with great masses of somber hair held in a little too loose, uh, loosely for neatness, with thick, quick lips and eyes that rolled away from the person who was talking to her. I'm sorry, we're late. The uh, Enos Jacksons were late and still agitated as they entered. His forehead had not quite vanished the scowl, nor her eyes the scorn. He was of the type that never lost his temper but caused others to lose theirs. Mrs. Jackson seemed fastened to her husband by an invisible leash. You looked at her curiously and wondered what such a nature would do in a crisis with a lurking sense of a woman who carried with her her own impending tragedy. 
As soon as the company had been completed and the incongruity of the selection had been perceived, a smile of malicious anticipation ran the rounds, which the hostess cut short. Well, well, now everyone is here. This is the order of the night. You can quarrel all you want. You can whisper all the gossip you can think of about one another. But, <laughs> but everyone is to be amusing. Also, also, everyone is to help with the dinner, if you please. Nothing formal and nothing serious. We may all be bankrupt tomorrow, divorced or dead. <laughs> but tonight we'll be gay. That is the invariable rule of this house. <laughs> now, me for the cooking apron. Harris, you're to go into the kitchen and bring in the hors d'oeuvre. Right you are. May I be of any help? Oh, thank you, Maud, darling, of course. Mrs. Cheever, yes, dear. you might come along, too. Oh, you me. There, now. Oh, darling, please tie me up in back, will you? Oh, yes. There you are. Fine, thank you. Now, to get these rings off. Soap and water always seem to do it. Oh, there. There we are. The rings are so beautiful. Oh, thank you. They're very nice. But there's only one that's very valuable. The sapphire. It's beautiful. Oh, uh, let me see. Oh, it must be very valuable. Mm-hmm. It cost 10000 six years ago. It's been my talisman ever since. For the moment, however, I am cook. Wait, are you going to leave the rings out like that? <laughs> of course, silly. Temptation, you know. Oh. <laughs> now, uh, now, I am the cook... Maud Lyle, you are scullery maid. Harris is the chef, and we're all under his orders. Uh, Mrs. Cheevers, did you ever peel onions? Good heavens, no. <laughs> there are no onions to peel. All you have to do is help to set the table. Well. Under their hostess's gay guidance, the seven guests began to circulate busily through the rooms, laying the table, grouping the chairs, arranging the flowers, and preparing the material for the chafing dishes. Mrs. Kildare, in the kitchen, ransacked the icebox, and with her own hands, shredded the chicken and measured the cream. Flanders? Oh, please. Flanders, please. Here, yes? carry this in carefully. Now, don't... I've got it with my life. Oh, good boy. Oh, Jeevers, stop watching your wife and put that salad bowl on the table. Everything ready, Harris? All set. Good. All right, all right now. Everyone, everyone sit down. I'll be right in. She went into her bedroom, took off her apron and hung it in the closet. Then going to her dressing table, she drew the hat pin around which were her rings from the pin cushion and carelessly slipped them on her fingers. All at once, she frowned and looked quickly at her hand. Only two rings were there. The third ring, the sapphire, was missing. Stupid. She returned to her dressing table. Immediately, she stopped. She remembered quite clearly putting the hat pin through the three rings. She made no attempt to search further, but remained without moving, her fingers slowly drumming on the table, her head to one side, her lips drawn in a little between her teeth, listening with a frown to the babble from the outer room. Who had taken the ring? Each of her guests had had a dozen opportunities in the course of the time that she'd been busy in the kitchen. Too much time before the mirror, dear lady. Well, it's not Flanders. Then she reconsidered. Well, why not? He's clever. Oh, I've got to think. To gain time, she walked back slowly to the kitchen, her head bowed in thought, her thumb between her teeth. Who has taken her? 
She ran over the characters of her guests and their situations as she knew them. Strangely enough, at each, her mind stopped upon some reason that might explain a sudden temptation. Well, I'll find out nothing this way. That's not the important thing to me, just know. The important thing is to get that ring back. And slowly, deliberately, she began to walk back and forth, her clenched hand beating the deliberate, rhythmic measure of her journey. Five minutes later, as Harris, installed as chef over the chafing dish, was giving directions, spoon in the air, Mrs. Kildare came into the room like a lengthening shadow. Her entrance had been made with scarcely a perceptible sound, and yet each guest was aware of it at the same moment, with a little nervous start. Oh, heavens, dear lady. You came in on us like a Greek tragedy. What is it you have for us? A surprise? I have... I have something to say to you. Mr. Enos Jackson? Yes, Mrs. Kildare? Kindly do as I ask you. Why, certainly. Go to the door. Go to the door? Please. Yes? Lock it and bring me the key, please. Some kind of a game. (laughs) There you are. Thank you. And now the bedroom door. Would you do the same? Of course. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Uh, mm. Mr. Cheever? Yes? Would you blow out all the candles except the candelabrum on the table? Blow out all the candles? Except the candelabrum. <laughs> For goodness sakes, Mrs. Kildare, what is it? I'm getting terribly worked up. My nerves... Maud Lyle. Yes? Put the candelabrum on this table. Here. No, no, wait a minute. Mr. Jackson, yes. first, clear off the table, please. I, I want nothing on it. <laughs> That's it. Now, now, please, put down the candelabrum. <clears throat> well, that... the last candle. All right. Now, listen. My sapphire ring has just been stolen. What? Oh, you're joking. Oh. What do you mean? The ring has been taken within the last 20 minutes. I'm not going to mince words. The ring has been taken, and the thief is among you. Stolen? But, Mrs. Kildare, is it possible? Absolutely, Mrs. Cheever. There's not the slightest doubt. Three of you were in my bedroom when I placed my rings on the pincushion. Each of you has passed through there a dozen times since. My sapphire ring is gone, and one of you has taken it. Oh, I don't know. Oh, that's quite true. I was in the room when she took them off. The sapphire ring was on top. Now, listen. I'm not going to mince words. I'm, I'm not going to stand on ceremony. I'm, I'm going to have that ring back. Now, dear lady... Listen to me. I'm going to have that ring back. And, and until I do, not a soul shall leave this room. I don't care who's taken it. All I want is my ring. Now, I, I'm going to make it possible for whoever took it to restore it without possibility of detection. The doors are locked and they'll stay locked. I am going to blow out the remaining candles in the candelabrum, and I am going to count to 100 slowly. You'll be in absolute darkness. No one will know or see what is done. But if at the end of that time the ring is not here on this table, I shall telephone the police and have everyone in this room searched. Am I quite clear? I I, I just can't believe that. Everyone take his place about the table, please. That's Excuse it. Excuse me, please. That will do very nicely. Now, I I will blow out the candles and count 100. No more, no less. Remember, either I get that ring, or everyone in this room will be searched. <clears throat> <clears throat> throat> 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty. Thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty. Forty-one, forty-two, forty-three, forty-four, forty-five, forty-six, forty-seven, forty-eight, forty-nine, fifty. Fifty-one, fifty-two, fifty-three, fifty-four, fifty-five, fifty-six, fifty-seven, fifty-eight, fifty-nine, sixty, sixty-one, sixty-two, sixty-three, sixty-four, sixty-five, sixty-six, sixty-seven, sixty-eight, sixty-nine, seventy. Seventy-one, seventy-two, seventy-three, seventy-four, seventy-five, seventy-six, seventy-seven, seventy-eight. The ring. Seventy-nine, eighty, eighty-one, eighty-two, eighty-three, eighty-four, eighty-five, eighty-six, eighty-seven, eighty-eight, eighty-nine, ninety, ninety-one, ninety-two, ninety-three, ninety-four, ninety-five, ninety-six, ninety-seven, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, one hundred. Mr. Cheever, you may give it to me. Well, well, now. Now that that's over, we can have a very gay little supper. Harris, Harris, will you please help me light these candles? And uh, there you are, gentlemen. Well, I. I say, Peter's old boy, that's not all. Absolutely. <laughs> the story ends there? The story ends there. But uh, who took the ring? Uh-huh. What, it was never found out? Never. No clues? None. I'm not sure I like the story. <laughs> it's no story at all. Oh, permit me, it is a story, and it is complete. In fact, I consider it unique, because it has none of the banalities of a solution. Leaves the problem even more confused than at the start. Well, I don't see... Of course you don't, my dear Rankin. You do not see that any solution would be commonplace, whereas no solution leaves a true intellectual problem. How so? Well, in the first place, uh, whether the situation actually happened or not, which is in itself a mere triviality, Peters has told it in a masterly way, the proof of which is that he's made me listen. Let's observe. Now, each person present might have taken the ring. Mm. Flanders, a broker, just come a cropper... Maud Lyle, a woman on the ragged side of life, in desperate means. Either Mr. and Mrs. Cheever, suspected of being card shops, and a very good touch there, too, Peters. Mr. Enos Jackson, a sharp lawyer, or his wife, about to be divorced. Even Harris, concerning whom very cleverly Peters has said absolutely nothing, to make him quite the most suspicious of all. There are, therefore, seven solutions, all possible, all logical. But beyond this is left a great intellectual problem. How so? Was it a feminine or a masculine action to restore the ring when threatened with a search? Knowing that Mrs. Kildare's clever expedient of throwing the room into darkness made detection impossible? Or was it a woman who lacked the necessary courage to continue? Or was it a man who repented his first impulse? Is a man or is a woman a greater natural criminal? <laughs> That's simple, Quinny. A woman took it, of course. Oh, on the contrary, it was a man. For the first action was more difficult than that. First. A uh, man, certainly. The restoration of the ring was a logical decision. Well, I recognize most of those characters, Peters. Mrs. Kildare, of course, is all you say of her. Extraordinary woman. Story's quite characteristic of her. Flanders, I'm not quite sure of, but I think I know him, too. I'm positive I do. Uh, did it really happen? Exactly as I've told it. The only one I don't recognize is Harris. Your humble servant. What? You, Peters? You were there? I was there. 
Pardon me, gentlemen. Oh, yes, uh, what is it, John? Mr. Peters, sir, your train. You told me to remind Oh, uh, yes, thank you. I didn't know it was so late. Uh, will you gentlemen pardon me? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. yes, of course, Peters. Nice to have met you all. Curious chap. Extraordinary. Now, uh, I wonder. Hmm. I wonder if we're wondering the same thing, gentlemen. Suspense. And so closes 100 in the Dark. Peters was played by Howard Duff, and the other club members were Joseph Kearns, Frank Albertson, John McIntyre, Dick Ryan, and Horace Willard. Teresa Marshall was Rita Kildare, and at her party were Jeanette Nolan, Wally Mayer, Mary Jane Croft, Jerry Hausner, and Grace Gillern. Tonight's Suspense radio play was adapted by Jack Fink, from a short story by Owen Johnson. Suspense. Produced and directed by William Spear for the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From November 20th, 1947, that was Suspense. The name of that one was 100 in the Dark. It featured Howard Duff, who was married to Idol Lupino in real life. Do you remember that? They used to do a show called, uh, it wasn't Mr. and Mrs. North. What was, what was the name of Howard Duff and Ida Lupino's uh, television show back in the 50s? They were a husband and wife detective team. Mr. and Mrs. North was uh, Richard Denning and Barbara Britton. Who, who was, uh, I'm talking about television now, not radio, but I'll have to think about it. It was uh, something like Mr. Adams and Eve, Mr. Adam and Eve, I think. Something like that. I'll look that up. Anyway, Howard Duff, that was also featured Joseph Kearns, who, of course, we talked about last week, was Mr. Wilson on the old Dennis the Menace television show and a lot of radio show. I mean, he's really better known for radio. And I always hate to just give these people credit for television. But you know what? It's what I remember. It's exciting to me to remember these actors uh, who have been, in most cases, gone for some time. And we all love this these old-time radio shows. But to think that they were alive during our lifetime and we actually saw them perform, be it on television, okay, it was on television. But nonetheless, uh, who can re- not remember Joseph Kern, the original Mr. Wilson on Dennis the Menace? And, of course, after he died, he was replaced by Gail Gordon. Anyway, that was Joseph Kern and Howard Duff and John McIntyre was in there who was married to Jeanette Nolan in real life. We remember John McIntyre from Wagon Train. He replaced Ward Bond. Jeanette Nolan is uh, just one of the best actresses there there were. And anyway, a whole great cast. And that wasn't mind teaser, wasn't it? Who do you think at the end, the question there? Well, I know what I thought. But I guess that's not for me to say. Everybody has to think whatever they thought. And 
there you have it for Tuesday, November the 11th in the year 2020. That's our drama for the day. Hope you enjoyed it. We will be back tomorrow with a mystery or a detective show, and we look forward to seeing you then. Hope you have a great day, everybody. And uh, we're going to go out tonight with a little Gordon Lightfoot. And this song was popular, I'm going to say, about 1971. And it's a purdy one. It's real purdy. All right, everybody, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. Streets 
A thousand months, a thousand years Where other lips will kiss her eyes A million miles beyond the moon That's where Forgotten 